0: Welcome to Politics in Question, the show where we talk about our failing political institutions and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America.
1: I'm Julia Azari. I'm an Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University.
0: So a lot of young people seem pretty pissed off about politics today, and a lot of young people just don't pay attention at all. A lot of them are angry at the Democrats. Some of them are even more angry at the Republicans, that a lot of them are wondering, you know, why even bother to vote? Because nothing changes. And we have the oldest president, Joe Biden, at at 79 still, as I checked. And uh, before him, Trump was the oldest president ever. So what's going on? Is it time to pass the torch? And if so, what would passing the torch mean? Is there a generational divide in politics? And what happens if that generational divide Divide comes into the open, or is it already there? Uh, to help us think about these questions today and talk more broadly about generational conflicts, in our politics is Kevin Munger, who's an assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University. Uh, he is also the author of a new book, Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. Welcome, Kevin.
2: Uh, thanks, Lee. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah. Well, we're delighted to have you. Well, the book is great. Uh, It really creates uh, a lot of things to think about and uh, a lot to talk about. So I'm going to start by thinking about the dilemma that young voters are are facing right now. It seems like a lot of young voters are very angry. I think they're they're particularly angry at Democrats because they feel like Democrats aren't fighting hard enough for them. This is, of course, because most young people tend to vote Democratic right now to the extent that they vote. And they feel like the issues that they care about, like climate change in particular, but also the sort of inequality in the economy, gun control, social justice, now abortion rights, that Democrats aren't really fighting for them. So what is, what is happening here? And what should young voters be doing? What advice do you have for young voters? And, and is the is the conflict that they feel about whether or not to vote or, or you know, do they have more power by withholding their vote? Is that is that something new? Is this generational conflict distinct? Help us make sense of what's going on right now in our politics.
2: So there's a lot to dig into here. On the one hand, it's a eternal fact of human life in the modern era that the young feel like the world they've inherited is not the world they want to live in, and that the old are holding them back. So this is a tale as old as time. But you're right that there's something distinct about what's going on in the political world right now, and especially in the American political world. So I think that to get at your question, it helps to take a slightly more comparative case. So it's true that we do have the oldest president in history who took over for the second oldest president in history, and that we have the oldest House of Representatives, the oldest Senate in history. We're almost certainly going to break those records uh, next, next election cycle. And that's the case in the United States, but it's not the case in many of these other established democracies have much younger politicians. And so I think there's two reasons for this. One is the thesis of my book, which is that the baby boomer generation In the United States, is a historically unique generation that the combination of their demographic heft, their economic success, and their control of political and cultural institutions has meant that they are holding on to power at the top of the age bracket much longer than previous generations had. And so, as a result, younger generations, and in this case, particularly the numerous but comparatively underdeveloped, Millennial generation are not able to begin the process of entering into the political sphere in the same way as previous generations had. And to return to the comparative case, this is made much worse because of the two party system in the US. So, because of our electoral institutions, it's very difficult to have third parties or non mainstream parties. But in contrast, in many European countries, we have. Youth oriented parties, like in many cases the Green Party, where young people are able to start the process of political socialization. And there's a virtuous cycle where you can get a small number of politicians into parliament, and that allows you to coalesce a base of party activists to establish a foothold in terms of actually controlling real estate and then bootstrapping that party and and keeping young voters excited and then ultimately developing a better pool of candidates. A more seasoned pool of activists, and then getting the issues you care about onto the table when it comes time to form a coalition government. And so that's of that's possible in the two-party system in the United States, both of the two parties are dominated by the boomer generation. And so they have been quite effective at preventing younger generations in either party from reorienting the political arena towards their issues. And in many cases, the style of campaigning and discourse that younger generations prioritize
1: i have a couple of questions one of the things that i liked about your project is that it uh seems really consistent with some of my pet theories about u.s politics (laughs) and so i want to want to run a couple of these ideas by you on this podcast you know our focus really is on institutions and i think that your understanding of the way that the boomer generation hasn't left positions of political power, it sort of gives us an alternative to thinking about specifically how those institutions work, other than the, the party system that you just mentioned, um, and more about kind of how people use them. So I have this, this one theory that essentially any set of institutions can be dysfunctional if people are determined to use them in a dysfunctional way. And some of the distinct factors of um, of the boomer generation seem like they're consistent with a kind of dysfunctional use. Um, and the other one, this was really where I kind of got thinking about cohort effects and about what has gone on in kind of the life cycle of the boomers. This other pet theory of mine is essentially that American politics is a victim of its own success and that people really don't appreciate the work and care required to keep democracy. I've really honestly mostly in thinking about that have trained this on my own generation on kind of young gen x old millennials um and the level of apathy that a lot of us displayed as we were aging into the electorate in the late 90s and the early 2000s but i also think there's something here about potentially about the experience of the baby boomers not old enough to remember world war ii you know born after the great depression so kind of not appreciating these moments of, of crisis in American democracy and these sort of moments of critical decision making. And then, you know, kind of only seeing only seeing American democracy being successful and really, you know, pushing at the boundaries of that in the way that they have have thought about politics, really engaging in, uh, you know, the disinformation politics. I would be I would love to hear more about the boomer story of Fox News, not on the consumption side, but on the supply side. And, you know, that that's sort of my other theory, is that boomers sort of lack, maybe they lack a general generational awareness of the fragility of democracy and have acted accordingly. I'm, I'm curious what you think about these takes.
2: Well, I'm happy to be of service in terms of helping you bolster your pet theories. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here, so let me uh, take these in turn. I think you're clearly right that no institution is robust to the attempt to misuse it, and that we're trying to design institutions which are... Somewhat less fragile, um, but the phrase "suffering from success," I think, is, is quite accurate. The U.S. Constitution is the oldest constitution in history, and as a result, was designed the longest to go, which is kind of tautological. But it means that it meet that the context in which it was designed is the farthest removed from the context in which we're living today. And I think that analogy to how the baby boomer generation, who are now at the top of the age cycle, experience the world, is apt. So there's a Emphasis in many circles, rightly so, on the idea of lived experience, right? We think that this is a very important kind of knowledge that the way in which people learn from their own lives should be respected and that we should give them credit for how they've experienced the world. So the baby boomers came of age in a period of unique economic prosperity and within their generation, white baby boomers in particular quite a bit of economic equality, they essentially lived the American dream. They all worked hard. They played by the rules. They were rewarded. So the number of baby boomers who went on to become wealthier than their parents is extremely high. And so they believe the system works. They believe that the democracy they've inherited is incredibly robust. And they think that the economy that they have lived with is, is the same that it always was. And I think these things are not really the case but this is where it's so hard to make the argument right that their lived experience is actually wrong that is that the world in which they lived is different from the world that we live in today and so a kind of meta level question is what kind of evidence or what kind of arguments could we use to convince them that is the case that their experience of paying for their college by mowing lawns in the summer is a complete fantasy in the contemporary world. I think this is the specific kind of argument that many people are familiar with making. But then the analogy to how democracy functions today versus how it functioned in the past. I personally, I come from uh, most of my research about media and social media and the internet and politics in particular so i'm i'm quite sympathetic to the idea that the changing media environment is a major lever for why politics is different now than it was today and so i think that the baby boomers might acknowledge that the internet is quite different than the world of their youth of the democracy functioning the way they thought it should but i don't think many of them have a good understanding of what to do which is fair enough i don't think anyone really does so i think that's kind of the central tension here that we have this single generation at the top of the age pyramid, who is extremely powerful and self-confident, but the world is changing under their feet because of longstanding shifts in demographics, the economy, and then very rapid recent shifts in the media, technological environment. I think
0: the argument about lived experience is incredibly important. And I think it, it helps to kind of inform different theories about how politics works and how politics should work. I think there are a few other very important arguments in your book about the what makes uh, boomers distinct, and I just want to call them out and I want you to, to kind of elaborate on them. One that you were kind of getting at was the media habits, which is just that older Americans get their news primarily from television. And to the extent that they use social media, they, they don't really know how to use it very well. So they actually are the, the main culprits uh, in the consumption and, and dissemination of fake news. Another kind of set of, of differences that you talk about has to kind of do with a general sense of, of how how one's cognitive functioning changes. Some of that is kind of a just general conservatism, aversion to change, but also a sense that they're losing status and identity. And And I think one of the things that struck me is that just a lot of old folks are actually quite alone and lonely. Uh, and, then, and then a third aspect, which is that, that you point out, is that the boomer generation is one of the whitest generations ever in U.S. history. So I'd love for you to to kind of talk about the ways in which the, the media habits, the kind of psychological orientations and the the uniquely white uh, demographics of the boomer generation are influencing our politics right now.
2: Absolutely. All right, so again, we got a, a multi-pronged question but I'll try to weave together an answer here. I think what I try to avoid in this book is, what I think is the dominant mode of generational discourse on the internet or in the the flippant news media, which is cheap shots about generation. And I think that precisely because there's so much intergenerational sniping about avocado toast, or whatever, this trivializes the topic. And it means that it's difficult to take it seriously. I think that rather than being the culprits of uh, sharing fake news, I would say victims, right? So we've uh, taken people who are no, we've given them no training, we've given them no resources to understand what's going on, on the internet, and we've exposed them to a full blast of weaponized, monetized misinformation. And so, yes, they're being taken advantage of, just like the people, older people are victims of financial fraud. They are also victims of information fraud. And so I think that the larger question that we should be asking is... What is the status and what is the role of older people in our society today? So whereas some societies tend to reserve a central place for older people in the extended family or in the community, American society does not place especially high status on older people, uh, largely because our dominant ideology is progress, both economic progress, and cultural, progressive, liberal progress. And in both of these ways, in both of these, these forms of progress, in many ways, older people are simply in the way. They're not able to help us move forward, and so we would prefer that they simply go away, that they get out of the way of younger generations who are going to push things forward. And you know, that's the kind of the culture we have uh, for better and worse. But I think that this is a kind of consequence of it. That there's a kind of situation now where, thanks particularly to increased longevity. We simply have more older people who can expect to live to be 85 or 90 than ever before. And the loneliness element, I think, is quite serious. Um, They're not embedded in rich social networks. They're no longer able to derive meaning or value from contributing economically through their job, which is how many of us in America tend to define ourselves. And they're given just 12, 16 hours a day to consume extremely potent, toxic political media. And so I think that we're kind of reaping what we've sown in terms of how we organize society when we have a kind of mass radicalization, even, growth of nihilism among older people who we are not really taking care of. And the irony, again, is they, they are so economically successful. They tend to own very desirable homes and to control a huge amount of the national wealth. So, it doesn't seem like they're a sympathetic case, but if we examine the social world they inhabit, I think there is a sympathetic case, and that this is the kind of large scale rethinking or at least thinking about how we deal with aging that the boomer aging crisis occasions. And so, the last point is about uh, a race and immigration. It's true that I think, the, depending on how you define previous waves of Immigrants like Irish, Italians, and, and Jewish people who were originally not considered white, they were considered racialized minorities, but then became, by and large, in fits and starts throughout the 20th century, deracialized, became seen as uninflected whites. Right around the baby boomers' birth, the period of, right after World War II, the U.S. was at its whitest in history, and this is compounded by the changing immigration laws. So restricted immigration in the early 20th century. So if you look at the percentage of foreign-born people over time, again, 1950 is the decade in which the lowest percentage of foreign-born people were living in the United States. So in those two dimensions, the boomers experienced the most racially homogenous context in American history, and they have lived to see America change into the most racially diverse it has ever been. And so that's a pretty vertiginous change. And I think that that is like the actual fact of that change explains why these kinds of topics are so salient to this generation.
1: I kind of want to go back to political parties a little bit. I'm curious if you have anything to say about the, uh, about how this plays out in the two different parties, because you said earlier, the two parties are both dominated by older people. And that's true. Although the Democrats are dominated by people who are actually older than baby boomers, right? Like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. But what's interesting to me is that I've heard a lot of people talk. I haven't looked into this myself. I've heard a lot of people talk about a generational gap among Democrats. And like, that's evident if you just look at, if you just look at like polls about um, primary support in both 2020 and 2016 and which candidates people were drifting toward, that seemed less evident on the Republican side in general like that. I, I realized there are some differences. There are some new conservative movements um, and there are some, at least as of five or 10 years ago, it seemed like there were some kind of rising stars in the Republican party who were Gen Xers or even older millennials. And it doesn't seem like that division is as clear and evident. It seems like, you know, what you were saying about progress to me really kind of keys in to some of that, I've done some work where I sort of look at at candidate rhetoric at different points, and I created these kind of rhetorical measures that are they're a little rudimentary called pro- about progress and preservation. It seems to me like this is a really big divide in the Democratic coalition um, between people who kind of want to preserve things as normal and preserve you know the basic capitalist system, all those kinds of things, and people who want to see really serious structural change, and those seem to map on to age, and I guess. Related to to that, I wanted to also ask about Donald Trump. You have this great line in the book about Trump is a little tongue in cheek, but you say it's also kind of serious that Trump was the only baby boomer who understood how to use social media and, and how that helped clear his path to the nomination and the presidency. I have this, I also have a theory about Donald Trump. Uh, my theory about Donald Trump is that he won the nomination because he has an incredible combination of things that I'll pro- probably almost no one in politics will ever have which is very high name recognition and no track record in politics or that he had in in 2015 so everyone kind of knows who he is but there's really no no positions to pin him down for no votes to explain and i wonder how those if, if those if there's any overlap between those or if those are just totally different theories of donald trump so i guess that's two party related nomination related questions
2: right yeah great i think a brief clarification point, the generations as defined, baby boomers are actually the only generation officially defined by the census. So the birth period from 46 to 64 is written in stone. But obviously these age brackets are not really derived by any politically relevant reasons. And so I think it's true that the generation of people born between 1940 and 1955, so the last five years of the silent generation and the first half of the boomers, are the truly distinct generation in terms of their overwhelming success in electoral politics. So this does go on to include Pelosi and Biden, who are, I think, part of this correctly defined generation, which has experienced much more success than the boomers born in the early 60s. But that's a nitpicky point. The broader point is that the partisan asymmetry is very much real. So my explanation for why this is, is largely that the Republicans have revealed that they actually don't stand for anything at all. They were willing to quickly reverse some of the policy positions they held for decades in 2016, and that, you know, ironically, this might mean that they they're more responsive to changing tides. So they're more willing to abandon what they had stood for in the past. And so, if there is a rising tide of different youth focused or at least use amenable uh, discursive strategies, if not policy positions, they might be the ones who are best able to tap into it. And so I think Trump is the reason why they were able to do it. They clearly were going to stick with the reform conservatives. And I do think that Trump's success in 2016 papered over what could have been a similar, if not as large generational divide. So if you look at the early primaries in 2016, and the age breakdown, there actually does seem like the Republicans' primary voters, the younger ones are breaking for Cruz and Rubio, um, and the older ones are voting for Trump in the early primaries. But then by the mid 2016 primaries, Trump has uh, run away with it, and so the that that pattern disappears in the aggregate data. So maybe Trump's success actually disguises what would have been a similar problem. In the republican party um to your point of trump's specific combination of assets i think that's right or at least i would synthesize these two theories by saying that the reason why trump understood social media is because of his extensive experience working with the new working with uh, interacting with and playing the new york tablet game which was the i think closest analog to social media in its demand for attention above all else. And so his ability to understand the dynamics of a kind of clickbait media, which I think tabloid journalism, where people are making the decision to buy the newspaper at the point of seeing a headline, is analogous to clickbait on the internet. His understanding of those dynamics allowed him to enter that position which you identified, which is high, high name recognition, and zero policy position. And so I think these two theories are in fact compatible, and that Trump is in fact a uh, unique candidate for this reason.
0: So I want to move us towards where where things are going, because you, you make some very interesting predictions in the book. And, and in fact, you, you write, uh, I quote, the conflicts of the 2020s will explicitly be about the functioning of capitalism and the 2020s will be a decade of zero-sum economic conflict about how to assign a fixed amount of federal money across these generations. So I'm curious how you see these conflicts playing out, and do you see them realigning the two parties in any ways? Do you see them breaking up the two parties? Do you see a younger generation just kind of swooping in and and expunging an older generation? Uh, are, Are we in... Is this going to be a, a a really era of radical economic policy? Like, I'm I'm just curious what what you see as the mechanisms forcing these changes, and and in what policy areas you see them potentially playing
2: out in. The 2020s, at least, are not going to see the end of Boomer power. I think that this generational replacement is indeed inevitable, but I think that it's going to take longer than most people think. If you just look at the age pyramid of voters and politicians, we're going to be in broadly the same place as we were by 2030. But younger generations, I think, will increasingly be organizing according to these economic policy positions in which the allocation of federal funds is zero sum. And I think this is simply because it's going to become inevitable. So much of our federal spending is on entitlements. The U.S. spends a higher percentage of its welfare spending on the elderly than any other Western nation. This is in large part because we spend very little welfare on the non-elderly. But it means that as there are more and more older people and they are a more prominent part of our federal budget, this is going to become a larger talking point. So the most obvious example when we're talking about these kind of things, Social Security, Doug Arnold, the Princeton political scientist, has a great new book on the politics of Social Security, and he has argued that this is an issue which could easily have been solved 20, 10, 30 years ago. The arithmetic of the accounting is quite straightforward. As we have fewer workers paying for more retired people, we're going to have to at some point raise taxes on somebody. And if they had simply raised taxes on the baby boomers when they were still in the workforce, a slight payroll tax increase would have been able to fund Social Security entirely, and we would have moved past this demographic transition. But politicians, none of them want to do that on either party. And so they've kicked the can down the road so that by early 2030, unless something changes, there's going to be automatic cuts to Social Security. Of course, this is the least desirable policy outcome for politicians imaginable. And I think for Americans as well, it's not a good outcome. So push is going to come to shove and someone is going to have to get taxed. And that's going to be the people currently in the workforce, i.e. not baby boomers. And so even paying a little bit of attention to the historical financial policy that led us to where we are now in the coming crises of social security and then Medicare, and then at the lower levels of government uh, pensions so the public pensions and many large union pensions are all facing the same crunch and they're all going to want to be b- bailed out. In fact, the Biden COVID bill included, I believe it was $150 billion to bail out a private pension fund, which was otherwise going to go bankrupt and had it stop and have to cut payments to older people who were retired. So, if the federal government is just going to print money and give it to older people, then I think younger people are going to get upset about that. And they're going to say, maybe you should print money and do what we want you to do. And there are very specific policies that they care a lot about uh, student loan debt forgiveness and climate change are the two biggest ones. And they care a lot about these two policies. They're extremely high salience for politically active young people. And they directly affect how they expect their lives to go. So, I think this will produce this kind of zero-sum economic competition. In terms of the specific institutional framework or how it will play out, that's, I think, a little bit less clear. I think the big question for me, as I was gesturing at before, is which of the two parties is gonna be able to step in and address these concerns best. So I don't think that there's going to be the collapse of the two-party system. I think anyone who's bet on that has lost their lunch over the past few centuries. And so I do think it's going to take place within one of these two parties, and I am not sure which of them it will be.
0: Since we're we're on parties, and you know, obviously I'm a advocate of expanding the number of parties, although I'm not betting my lunch on it. I also already ate my lunch today, um, so I guess, I guess I could bet tomorrow's lunch on it. Now, you know, say, for example, we were to, to change our voting system in, in a way that allowed new parties to emerge, how would that a- allow us to to better reckon with some of these generational conflict issues than what we have now, which is basically putting them off until they get so bad that they become really ugly?
2: So the same way that other, I think, multi-party systems are better able to represent the policy preferences of organized minorities. So, right, if there was a, a youth party in the U.S., then we would have more politicians who were you know, young, who understood how young people experience the world, who understood the distinct discursive style that has evolved among internet natives and, and younger people who use used the internet their whole lives, and that this would then cause more young people to vote and be more active in politics, which would then increase the power of this youth party, which would then There's this whole cycle, which we're not getting to see any of the steps of because it's been choked off at the start. And so if there was an organized force with some institutional power, that would force the gatekeepers to reckon with them rather than being able to shut them out at the level of deciding which policies to put on the agenda. Julia, did you want to ask a question?
1: Yes, I did want to ask a question. So I wasn't sure if you had to follow up on that. So I want to get into some of the predictions for the future. Also, I really want to get into the you know, who are the potential um, millennial and even at this point, there are people who are right zoomers, uh, Gen Z's who might be getting into politics who we think will be, you know, the first first millennial president, first millennial um, congressional leaders you talk about AOC, who's maybe the best-known millennial politician in the book. Do you have any, any predictions or thoughts about that?
2: So I think the, the case of AOC is so good uh, for, in terms of illustrating what would be possible if there were more millennial politicians that the kind of follow-up question is, why is there only sort of one of her? Why aren't there more people like that? And I, I think it's because of you know she, the process by which she got into office was somewhat idiosyncratic. Uh, the analogy would have been, on the Republican side, Madison Cawthorn, who is no longer in Congress. And so I think that these, these two politicians both adopted a style of upstart, aggressive, internet-first campaigning, which allowed them to reach a national audience. And I think that this is a key difference in how Congress works today than it did in the past. The idea of the House of Representatives is at least based on geographic representation. But these young politicians who use social media are able to generate large amounts of donations from around the country by playing to an activist base that is distributed and not in their own district. And so Madison Cawthorne flew a bit too close to the sun, perhaps, and was a bit too caught up in his own social media success that he was able to not pay enough attention to the nitty-gritty elements of politics and lose. So someone who is able to do both of these things well, is able to use a internet first strategy to generate name recognition and and fundraising, but also pay attention to the power politics in the parties is probably who's gonna succeed. In contrast, the dark horse candidate is of course Pete Buttigieg, the most successful millennial politician to date. And one who famously is extremely unpopular among millennials. So millennials tended to reject their cohort mate in the 2020 primary, I think the narrative, which I buy, is largely that he was naturally successful in a way which made him unrelatable. If the narrative of the millennials and their experience of the world is one of struggle and inability to access institutional power, Buttigieg's slick progress through many different areas of US government and and politics uh, made him seem a bit smug and, and not relatable to the general millennial condition.
1: I had this fascinating conversation with my students on the last day of class uh, this past semester in American Presidency where I had a totally different lecture planned and we somehow ended up talking about age and politics and the gerontocracy, which is interesting, right? Because again, they're Gen Z, so Pete Buttigieg is much closer in age to me than to them. But we we all agreed that uh, Pete Buttigieg is an older person's idea of what a younger person should be like. But it was funny to me because they had said a bunch of things initially that would indicate that they would say they didn't like him in a survey, but then they sort of like softened and said, "Well, we might be open to him." I don't know if this is just because they realized he's close in age to me, but <laughs> um, they, uh, you know, they, they were they were interested in learning more about him because he does seem to be kind of the only prominent person in that age bracket other than AOC, who we also talked about a little bit. But Lee, I'll let you get in here.
0: Yeah, I just want to ask, you know, a little bit more about the millennial and Gen Z generations, not just about the issues that they care about, but also the style of politics that they relate to. Now, you know, I think the. Older generation might say about the young kids, well, they have sh- such a short attention span, and all they care about is these influencers on social media, and they jump from one thing to the next, and they take themselves too seriously, and they don't take the world and the compromises that 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 the older generation had to to work through seriously enough. You know, it's sort of this, you know, Neil Postman amusing themselves to to death critique and that, that they're just fundamentally unserious people is that a fair critique of the younger generation what what does the older generation miss in making that critique and what would politics led by generation Z and the millennial generation look like
2: right so i a big postman fan myself i think that media technology defines a lot more about how people experience the world than simply the ratio of Republican to Democrat content on their newsfeed or whatever. And that I think that indeed, each new dominant media technology changes people in a very real way, in a fundamental way. And I would say, I think the critique has has merit, right? Um, the, the response is, of course, who gave them this world why, 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 why is it their fault that they were born into this world which caused them to be like this and then to turn it back on the boomers who are famously the generation of television the media technology critique applies there as well television is a very different kind of media but one which encourages complacency which can encourages a kind of simplistic thinking and a lack of questioning the world and just accepting received narratives So the boomers were the first generation raised by television. I think they were shaped by television. And I think it's kind of funny in the age of social media, we forget how many media critics were sounding five alarm bells about what television was doing to children, to society. And I think they were right. And I think those critics about what social media is doing to people in society are also probably right. And I think that if you look at the Putnam, Bob Putnam's book about... Bowling Alone, if you read it, he assigns at least a third of the decline in sociality and and belonging to civic institutions to television itself. The central argument about changing social dynamics in the post-war American world, the boomer world, also assigns a high degree of agency to media technology.
0: So it's time for the Substack Generation and the Long Form Podcast Generation.
2: Right? Yes, that does.
1: I didn't even ask if there's going to be a Gen X president. We
0: all know there's not.
2: I, I'm sorry. I'm the bearer of bad news, but. <laughs> uh,
0: well, Julia, you're going to run. No way. All right. <laughs> um, all right. So, yeah. So, where does that leave us? Uh, leaves me feeling like I have more questions about where things are, are going then I have answers, as always. And It leaves me, once again, more sure that there is something fundamentally flawed with our two-party system, uh, and that if we had more parties, we would at least have a better chance of solving some of our intractable political problems. Where does it leave you, Julia?
1: I mean, it leaves me thinking that this is maybe a little bit more of a meta point, but it leaves me thinking about the fact that you know, there's this real kind of intellectual tension in generations being overly generalized and some of the challenges of drawing inferences around that. But it leaves me thinking like th- this is a thing that's, that's often not in people's explanations for why politics looks the way it does. I've been thinking about this since I heard Ezra Klein also talking about this in a, a podcast with Tressie McMillan-Cottom, and they were saying generational replacement is a real source of, of change, and to some extent, your work, Kevin, is a sort of flip side of that. Uh, lack of generational replacement is a source of political conflict and stagnation. And so it's to me, it's sort of interesting that a lot of the variables we look at in political science, including this one, don't necessarily pick up on these kinds of nuts and bolts ways in which people organize and understand their world and make decisions accordingly. So that's kind of what I'm taking away.
2: I think that's exactly right. So Paul Pearson's book, Politics and Time, makes a profound point about the temporal cycles of what processes, social political processes, are amenable to the kind of analyses that we want to do. And there's this giant tension, which is, The human life cycle is a kind of fixed rate of change, one that is in fact kind of growing as the life cycle expands and as the age at which people have children grows later, in contrast to the rate of technological change, which continues to accelerate. So there's this giant tension in these two central processes and the rate at which they change, and then the rate at which academic knowledge is able to capture these processes. Talking about generations is not particularly popular in serious quantitative analysis today because there's no policy prescription. Like, what are we going to do? We're looking at a tide which started to move 60 years ago, and we are seeing how that plays out today. And there's nothing we could do about this fact. But I think that the first step is to acknowledge that it's happening, which will then allow us to perhaps see the next wave coming and figure out how to adjust our institutional structures, social security, obvious example, to this demographic fact. And I mean, I just keep coming back to the fact that countries are people, right? So the distribution of ages in a country is a central fact of what a country is. It's not some ex- ancillary fact or, or some little tidbit of trivia. It is central to how a country operates and how it organizes itself. And so looking at these simple demographic facts and trends I think, does illustrate why the world feels so weird right now. The tension between a dominant old generation and a revolutionary technology means that things just don't make sense. Things just don't make sense why the world
0: feels so weird right now. That seems like the perfect way to end another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
2: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.